Hello and welcome back to the Herbert Smith Freehills Tax Podcast, Tax Bites. My name is Toby Eggleston. I'm a partner in the Melbourne office. And joining me today is Mark Peters, solicitor in the Sydney office. Hello, Mark. Hello, Toby. Great to be here. Now, Mark, your speciality? Specialising in state taxes Australia-wide with a particular focus on stamp duties, land taxes. Great. In our offsite about two months ago, you mentioned long-standing desire to focus on this area. I think we only come along once in a generation, those born to do state taxes, but maybe that's me. Uh, you've carved out a, a niche lane. Uh, okay, Mark. Um, so today, what are we talking about? So we thought it'd be good to touch base on the new commissioner's practice notes that have come out in New South Wales. And this is now six months on from the 10 May amendments, which introduced a whole range of new provisions into the New South Wales Duties Act, but most critically was a new head of duty called a change of beneficial ownership, which imposes duty on another transaction. So not a transaction that is already dutiable, but another one that results in a change of beneficial ownership of dutiable property. And there's a significant number of carve outs. But quickly, what has happened over the past six months is as the provisions have circulated and people have become more aware as to their potential scope, revenue has decided best to issue practice notes on precisely what is the extent of the impact of these provisions, particularly as they relate to option transactions and lease transactions. And would it be fair to say that the Commissioner's guidance is perhaps broader than generally had been thought? Yes, that's certainly the case. I think when these provisions first came in and you read some of the explanatory material, you get the sense that this was intended to be an anti-avoidance type provision of capturing transactions that by all in rights should be dutiable but weren't previously caught. As it's turned out, quite a number of everyday transactions, the grant of a call option, has now been captured as being dutiable. So certainly a lot broader change than perhaps was anticipated by practitioners. Yep. Okay, let's dive in. Leases. Since 2008, when lease duty was abolished, in New South Wales, you could fairly safely say that a lease was only going to be dutiable on its grant, and that includes an agreement for lease in circumstances where monetary consideration was paid for the grant. So that's distinct from rent, but actual money paid on top for the lease being granted. That has now changed in revenue's mind. They view the creation of a lease as creating an interest in land, which is correct. And that is then captured by the new change of beneficial ownership provisions, which treat the creation of dutiable property being an interest in land as a change of beneficial ownership. So here, because they say they've had an existing provision that captures where monetary consideration is paid for the grant of a lease, now this new head of duty can pick up scenarios where non-monetary consideration has been given for the grant of the lease. So that is new and that creates a lot of complexities, particularly in situations where the lessee is under an obligation to make improvements to the property, which will then revert to being owned by the landlord at the end of the lease period. So that is the main change that's quite significant here. And you can imagine that could be quite significant for infrastructure type transactions where this occurs, maybe in, in a public-private context, but then also just other general circumstances where, for whatever reason, two commercial parties have reached an agreement where there will be improvements made to the property that revert to being the ownership of the landlord. Yeah, certainly that could have a significant 
impact on PPP transactions. But are there any exceptions to that, Mark? So there's a number of, of big carve-outs, but helpfully, and I think that there's probably two pieces to take away from it here, is that revenues focusing on leases that are expressed that the improvements become the property of the landlord at the end of the lease period. There's a question where the lease is silent on it, but if it's drafted as, say, for example, a lot of renewables projects take a wind farm where there may actually be an obligation on the lessee to the wind turbines at the end of the lease period, then you could expect that kind of transaction's not going to be captured as it's there's no scenario when you're analysing the grant of the lease where those fixtures could become the property of the landlord. And the other area is that revenue has given a quasi-concession through the Commissioner's practice note as to how they're going to calculate the duty payable. And they're saying that in the absence of you providing a valuation report, which shows what the value of the particular improvements will be to the landlord at the end of the lease period, they will look to what is the cost of the particular improvements and apply a percentage formula by reference to the term of the lease. So, for example, if you have a 20-year lease and you are under an obligation to build improvements, perhaps it's a pub, which will then revert to the landlord at the end of the period, you will be liable to pay duty on 75% of the cost of building the pub on the site. So that is concessional in the sense of that you don't need to go out and obtain a valuation report. Particularly, it's concessional in that if the lease term is greater than 50 years, and noting that doesn't include option periods, the primary lease term must be for a period greater than 50 years, then revenue will treat the value of those improvements to the landlord as nil. So there'll be no duty payable in that context. So right. there is and some... So Yes. And so presumably, though, you'll have to adduce evidence as to what that expected cost of construction will be. Indeed. And there's a lot of complexity associated with that when the dutiable event is the grant of the lease. That is when mm. the obligation will fall upon you to approach revenue with the transaction for it to be stamped. At that time, the improvements may not have actually been constructed. There may be preliminary works done to work out what the improvements are, what happens to cost overruns. These are all questions that are not clear at the moment based on the Commissioner's practice note. Okay. You'll be kept in business for a while then, Mark. Yeah. And this is an area where there will obviously continue to be growing practice over time as revenue begins to see more of these transactions and provides more guidance on what they expect from taxpayers. And then... What happens at the end of a lease or a surrender? Is there any potential duty capture there? Yeah, so one particular area where revenue seems to have concern is a lease coming to an end. And this is not a lease like ones we've just discussed where there's an express provision that the improvements will revert back to the landlord. But this is more a scenario where a lease has been entered into over the course of that time, the tenant have installed fixtures on the property. And then at the end of the lease term has allowed those fixtures to continue to be the property of the landlord rather than removing them at the end of the lease period. And I should note that these scenarios should only be dutiable where consideration is being paid by the landlord for that particular abandonment of those fixtures by the by the tenant, although there, there is quite a degree of complexity, particularly as one of the exemptions that has been included in the legislation is that there is no duty on the surrender of a tenant's interest in fixtures that are fit out for commercial practice. 
why that's been limited to commercial premises is not clear. What precisely is the scope of a commercial premises as opposed to, say, industrial premises or something else? Is there a distinction that's not clear at the moment? But where the complexities can arise, particularly, and I think this is what's motivating revenue, is where there is very high value tenants fixtures. So go back to a wind farm scenario where there's an obligation on the lessee to remove the turbines, but it reaches an arrangement with this particular landlord where it will essentially sell those turbines to the landlord. And the way that transaction will be implemented is simply by letting the lease end and not taking some other active step to transfer those fixtures. Because of course, once the fixtures are installed on the landlord's property, they become part of the land. So from a technical perspective, there may not actually be any need for any other document to evidence a transfer of the term. So previously you could have perhaps just simply allowed the lease to end. Whereas now if consideration is paid, revenue will certainly be monitoring those sort of transactions closely. Yeah, fascinating this question without notice. But is there any risk of there being duty in a sale or an M&A type transaction? I'm assuming probably not. We sometimes get the question as to is the target landholder and Typically where the target is just got rental property, but it's paying market value rent, it won't be needed to have sort of any value in the land. I'm just wondering whether there's any scope yeah. for those type of transactions to be subject to duty. I think there's probably two points there. If you're paying market value rent, then you're right. The lease itself shouldn't be valuable. But the provisions in the landholder regime in most Australian jurisdictions now pick up items that are fixed to land as well as part of that. So in a wind farm type transaction, if you have got an interest in land which is on market terms, correct, the lease may on one view not be valuable, but if there's items fixed to it that are valuable, then they will be captured by the duty net anyway. So in a landholder transaction, I wouldn't expect this to make a major difference, but I think where this could potentially create more complexities is where you've got an assignment of one of these kinds of valuable leases, whether revenue would treat that as being a change of beneficial ownership that should be separately dutiable under those provisions in a way that is different from how those transactions may have been treated historically. Yeah. Okay. So anything further on leases? No, I think that about sums up the key points. I think the one piece of good news, though, is that the Commissioner's Practice Note does confirm that payments that are moving from the lessee to the lessor on termination of the lease, for example, make good payments, are not dutiable. So that ordinary practice is not impacted. Okay. Grant of call options. I remember on our first tax podcast, Ginny and I discussed the changes that have been made to the legislation in respect of options and the risk of double tax on the option fee as well as the consideration paid in respect of the actual exercise of the option. Where are we up to now? I think what's come out of the practice note is that what is a call option fee is potentially much broader than what people had originally expected. So in the circumstances where a call option is granted and there is a significant amount of money paid for the grant of the call option, then that's quite clearly a call option fee. Where greater complexity arises is where you've got a security deposit type arrangement that's described in the documents as a security deposit. And Revenue has provided an example in their practice note of a scenario where they say 
a security deposit will not be dutiable as a call option fee. And the features that they point to are the security deposit being wholly refundable, it being paid in and held in an escrow account, and there being no other break or other fees under the option. Now that's quite a rigorous framework to put in place to say that particular security deposit is not dutiable. So for example, the view that may have been held historically was that simply if the security deposit was refundable, if the option wasn't exercised, then that could be viewed as being a genuine security deposit. It's not a call option fee. It's got to be repaid. It can't be consideration for the grant of the option. That is cast into a little bit of doubt by these new provisions as to precisely what features a security deposit will need to have not be dutiable. But it's important not to get divorced from the fundamental question when it comes to these things, which is the duty is imposed on the greater of the unencumbered value of the particular call option and the consideration which moves its grant. If you've got a wholly refundable security deposit, but it isn't held in an escrow account, then it is hard to see how the entirety of that security deposit can be treated as dutiable, because essentially what has been advanced to the grantor of the call option is the right to use those funds for the call option period. It's essentially a form of finance, as opposed to it just being a fee that they get to walk away with at the end of the transaction, no matter what. So there's quite a bit of complexity there that I think is not drawn out in the most helpful detail in the Commissioner's practice notes. So I think it'll be interesting to see as practice continues to develop precisely what are the features that revenue are going to latch on to pushing one particular security deposit into the dutiable category and another security deposit not being treated as such. Yeah. And is this only options over interest in land or does it go further yeah. than that? So this is focused on call options to purchase land in New South Wales. If it's a different kind of option, whether it's to be granted a lease, that shouldn't be impacted by these provisions. And if well, you've got a, at least some good news. Yes, indeed. And if you've got a bare put option, then that is not captured either as a bare put is not an option to purchase land. Yeah. Yeah. OK. So those are the key takeaways on leases and options. Any other dutiable transactions that listeners should be aware of under the new guidance? I think one of the other big changes is that the grant of an easement for consideration is now dutiable in New South Wales. There's a carve out if it's not granted for consideration, but if there is consideration for the grant of the easement, then it will be dutiable. It's not that uncommon to see transaction documents where buried in the particular transaction document, there is a grant of an easement. The, the main transaction may be a call option to purchase particular pieces of land or a lease, but as part of that, there is an ancillary easement that is granted. Often you will see that as not being expressed as being for any consideration, in which case that may well not be captured by the new provisions. But if you've got something as basic as the easement being granted for a dollar, then that is being granted for consideration and it's nominally dutiable at the minimum amount of $10 and needs to be stamped. So in those circumstances, it's far better to have either the grant of the easement for truly no consideration or if it is being granted for real consideration to make that quite clear, as opposed to having to be caught by a scenario where it has to be submitted for or nominal stamping. And then there's been a number of other sort of more anti-avoidance type scenarios that revenue has focused on. So particularly focusing in on 
trust cloning and changes of capacities in which a trustee holds judicial property. As part of the definition of what constitutes beneficial ownership under the new provisions, it includes the position of a trustee. In revenues practice note, they have made clear that if you hold on trust for trust A, and you as the trustee decide that you are going to hold that property now for trust B, and in circumstances even where there may not be any changes in the upstream beneficiaries, that trust switching process in revenue's mind is a change of beneficial ownership of the relative property of the trust, which will be dutiable. And then also the conversion of discretionary trusts to fixed trusts and vice versa, that process of, of either crystallising a beneficial interest in particular beneficiaries or converting a defined beneficial interest in particular property into a mere right to seek proper administration of the trust with all the balance of the specific interest in the dutiable property being held by the trustee. That conversion is being considered a change of beneficial ownership. Well, certainly the former was always a resettlement risk, that's for sure. So Indeed. Uh, yep. Yep. Uh, great. Okay, what else can we look forward to? Or what do you think the impact is of these changes? It's quite interesting in the background where New South Wales has introduced its new first home buyer scheme with the broader context of that being that New South Wales was contemplating moving towards a broad-based land tax instead of stamp duties. It's now turned up as a first home buyer scheme, essentially. But on one hand, as revenue and the New South Wales government seems to want to move away from stamp duty, these changes are extremely significant in terms of broadening the duty base and making a number of transactions subject to stamp duty that were never subject to stamp duty previously. Of an interesting dichotomy there. But in terms of the some of the key takeaways, I think, for the listeners in terms of options, really are put and call option structures still that useful in the context of option fees being dutiable. In particular circumstances, it may be better to just have a contract for the sale of land with a long exercise period and potentially relying on the cancelled agreements concessions if ultimately various conditions precedents aren't met and you do not wish to continue with the transaction. Other areas will be, particularly in the grant of a lease, is there any non-monetary consideration? I think previously people could have either ignored that situation or not sought specific advice, but if you have got any sort of lease transaction where there could be non-monetary consideration, it's imperative to get advice now. The law is really quite still unclear, and I think there's still a fair bit of work that needs to be done by both revenue and practitioners to understand precisely what is the final scope of these provisions. Lastly, if you're at the end of a lease period and consideration is being paid by the landlord or the lessee for particular fixtures or other kinds of fit out at the end of the lease period, then certainly take advice on that. Always wise. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Mark. Anything else you want to share with us on the way out? No, I think that's it, Toby. Just Uh, wishing the listeners a very happy Christmas. Indeed. I will also congratulate you on winning the Rising Star Award at the Tax Institute Summit. Congratulations. Endorsement of your skills. So, listeners, there is an extensive newsletter that Mark and Ginny have put together. We will try to link it to it in the show notes, but if you can't find it there, you'll be able to search Mark's profile because I know he's posted it there. 
Anywhere else they can find you on the socials, Mark, or is LinkedIn the best way? I think LinkedIn's the best way, Toby. Excellent. <laughs> yes, you clearly don't have the same Twitter addiction that I do then. Okay. Thank you for that, Mark. And listeners, thank you for listening through this. We'll be back shortly with another exciting update on the world of tax in Australia. Thank you and goodbye.